Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, as we get started here, I just want to say thank you for that pastor appreciation. I can speak on behalf of all the staff. Um, now, we kind of knew that was coming this morning, but last night we didn't know that was coming. And so kind of caught us off guard a little bit, but I just want to express to you how grateful we are. And I just want to tell you that, that, um, that uh, you all make it very easy to be in this role, okay? Because you are a wonderful church, and I want you to know that. Um, that uh, God's blessing has been on this church for a long time, and the things that God has out in front of us are, are, are really exciting as a church family. And I think with the West Campus and all that's going on, so from, from my heart, to your, thank you for that, past appreciation. I look forward to digging in that basket. She handed it to me, and I think it's heavier than it was last night. It was like, oh! And so I'm looking forward to, to reading the cards and things, but, but, but thank you. Hey, do you guys got your Bibles? Go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter, well, we'll start around four. We're gonna move forward from there, but we can start in chapter four. And as you're finding Genesis, um, I would like to just thank Pastor Cody for preaching last week in my place. Did he do a great job? Absolutely. <laughs> He continued our series, Origins, and he, he started in, in chapter four, which if you, if you were here last week or you've, or you, you've read it, I hope you have, um, this is where Cain kills his brother Abel, and it's the very first murder in the history of mankind. And not only that, but it's a very sad revelation as you get to Genesis four, that sin is spreading. That's what's loud and clear in Genesis 4. Sin that started in the garden with Adam and Eve has continued outside the garden in the lives of their children and, and others. And um, uh, the same choice that Adam and Eve were given in the garden, which is free will, they could choose to follow God's ways or not, well, that choice is there for everybody else as well. And we see that Cain chose not to follow God. So, so Cain um, started out this lifestyle, and there's information we, that, we, you know, we just kind of look at his, as the generations that followed him as they progressed, and we see that seven generations of Cain's descendants they were kind of like their, 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 their forefathers. They, they did not follow God at all. Not at all. So up here we'll see seven generations of, of, from Adam through Cain. And these seven generations right here, um, we read about um, um, their tech, technological advancements. We, we read about the great things that they did as far as like their prosperity and their musical achievements and how they advanced society. But what's really sad is you read through these first seven generations, you know what you don't hear about at all? You don't hear anything about God. And that's really sad. Lot of achievements, nothing about God. And by the time that you get to Lamech here on the seventh generation, man, they have really fallen far from obeying God. I mean, you get to this seventh generation over here with Lamech, you've got a viciousness that's in this family. You've got a lack of morality that's on display. And I'll give you an example. Lamech, who, who was a polygamist, he had, had a couple of wives and he bragged about revenge and murder. I mean, by the time you get to the seventh generation of Cain's family, you, we, I tell you, we're a long way from the garden, friends. Long way from the perfect garden. But Adam and Eve had other children as well. They had a son named Seth. And Seth descendants are listed out in the Bible for us as well. We read about the first seven generations. We, we don't know as much about here. What I mean by that is, we, you know, we learn about some of their achievements on Cain's side. But on Seth's side, we, we don't really know about what they achieved. But, but we know something about them that wasn't present in Cain's family. They worship God. They worship God. In fact, in fact, there in Genesis 4, 26, you can look at it. It's like, at this time, men worship God. 
There's something different about Seth's line of descendants. So very simply, just think of it like this. Cain's descendants moved on without God and they had sinful rebellion in their hearts. But Seth's descendants seemed to move on with more of awareness, a sense of godliness in their family. And in fact, Genesis um, in chapter five, the whole thing, if you've read it, you know the whole thing is just one big genealogy of Seth's family. And it's interesting, as you start to look at those names, some things start to pop out. Like you get to the seventh generation, see the name Enoch right there? The seventh generation of Seth's family. Enoch, did you know that he is only one of two people in the entire world that never died? Did you know that? Only one of two people never experienced death. For whatever God said, I'm gonna spare Enoch from sin's worst consequence, which is death. Got your Bibles? Look at chapter five, verse 21. Chapter five, verse 21, it says this. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. And after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God. 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God, then he was no more because God took him away. Now isn't that something? I mean, here's a guy who's like, God, I'm gonna spare you from sin's worst consequence, which is death. And I, I wonder how that happened. Was Enoch just walking down the sidewalk with his family and then poof, he was gone and nobody knew what happened? I, I don't know, but God just took him away at age 365. Here's a little trivia for you. I said that Enoch was only one of two people in the world that never had to experience death. Who was the other one? Elijah, very good. Not quite as strong as Saturday night. I'm just gonna let you know. Saturday night was Elijah. We got a few, that's right, Elijah, 2 Kings chapter two. Here's a, here's a little bonus trivia for you, question for you. That I'm just here to help you out in case you're ever in a, you know, a trivia game, biblical trivia, you need to know some answers. Enoch had a son named Methuselah and Methuselah turned out to be 969 years old when he dies. Do you know what that makes him besides old? It makes him the oldest man who ever lived. All right, so if you're ever doing a trivia question, who's the oldest man who ever lived? His name is Methuselah. He was Enoch's son. He lived to 969 years of age. So what I want to point out is Cain's descendants didn't care much about God. We read about murder, revenge, pride, polygamy, all in this family. Seven generations into it, we got a scoundrel named Lamech. But seven generations into Seth's family, you've got Enoch, who walked with God his entire life and never experienced death. So do you see how far away these two families were? Seven in, you got Lamech, terrible guy. Seven generations in, you got Enoch, walked with God. Now, three generations later, okay, over here, three generations later, you come to a guy named Noah, and Noah would become one of the most well-known people in the entire Bible. In fact, I would even say that even people who don't read the Bible, people who don't follow Christ, they have some kind of understanding of who Noah was and, and why his name is remembered. In Genesis chapter six, verse nine, it says this, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. So Noah, just like his great-grandfather Enoch, they were both described the same way. Noah walked faithfully with God. But, but here's the big problem. 
By the time Noah comes around, the condition of the human race has become really bad. Sin has spread so rapidly throughout the entire world, it had been become completely corrupted, and God reached this point, okay? By the time you get to Noah, 10 generations into mankind, God had reached this point where he was so put out by the corruption that had spread around the world that he just decided to destroy it. And so what I'd like for us to do is like to turn to Genesis 6, and we're gonna read the first eight verses of Genesis chapter six together. And I want you to pay very close attention to this language. Then we're gonna come back and pick it apart a little bit verse by verse. So let's read it all together. Verse one. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not contend with humans forever for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will, wipe, I, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Well, I tell you, these, uh, these first few verses here in chapter six, they really do paint a very dismal picture of the world, don't they? I mean, this is not good news in, in any ways. And, and by the time you get to, to this point where God is, is making these proclamations, these, these declarations, um, we are a long way from the garden, long way from the garden. By the time we get to Genesis 6, over 1,500 years have passed since God created mankind. And the reason we know that is because Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5 gives us a very clear genealogy that tells us how old people were when certain people were born. And so it's pretty easy to calculate just how old the earth is at this point. So we know, if you go back and read, we know that Adam, there at the top, the granddaddy of them all, he was 130 years old when Seth was born, 130. We also know from Genesis 5 that Seth was 105 years of age when Enosh was born. And Enosh was 90 years of age when he became the father of Kenan and so forth. So you just go on down through the genealogy and you add up all these years. And when you do that, what you find is that, uh, that uh, from Adam to the very day that Noah entered the ark, 1,656 years have passed. That's a long time. Did you know that? Did you know that the earth was over, did you know that it was 1,600 years of mankind before God destroyed it? I bet you that was a little bit longer than what, what you thought. But 1,656 years between Adam's first year of life and the day that Noah entered the ark. Now, I'm a guy that likes to compare things. So just like, like how do I relate that to today? Well, I'll compare it this way. Obviously today, this year is 2021, right? 2021. If you were to rewind the clock 1,656 years, the year would be 365 AD. Do you know what happened in 365 AD? I don't either. I never looked it up. I have no idea. 
but there were things happening in the world, and it's a long time ago, but you know, it's, it's, it's not, I mean, it's not unfathomable. So really, kind of the time frame we're looking at of the first six chapters of Genesis is like if the, if the world started in the year 356 A.D., then the flood happened in 2021. That's the amount of time that we're talking here in the first six chapters of Genesis. Um, as you were reading the book of Genesis, did this question come to your mind? I wonder how many people died in the flood. I wonder how many, how many people were actually born in that 1,656 years. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. All we've got is our very best guess. And we can make a, an educated, informed guess. And many people have, have really tried to figure this out. I can just tell you, here's one method they've tried to figure out. And I'll tell you some numbers they came up with. If you take the growth rate today to be the same as the growth rate of the pre-flood world. And you mathematically do all the stuff that, to pull that together. Then it's estimated there was about 750 million people on the earth by the time you get to Genesis 6. Now, some have argued that people's lifespan were much longer, and you know, we see that lifespan was, was a lot longer. I mean, to get to the 10th generation of Noah took a lot longer to get to 10th generation in your family, I guarantee it. People live longer. They had children later. So some have argued that the, the earth could have had up to a billion people on it. Uh, we don't know. It's just a, an educated guess, but, but what we do know for sure is that by the time you get to Genesis 6, sin has spread so rapidly that it broke God's heart. That's what we know for sure. It had come so corrupt that God was like, I'm done. I'm done with this. I sometimes hear people say, and I've said it myself, and maybe you've said it yourself, said things like this. We live in the darkest days of evil that this world has ever seen right now. Have you ever thought that? Right now is the darkest days of evil. Or it's never been worse than it is right now. And boy, that would have been a really easy thing to say over what we've come through over the last 18 months, huh? Or it's never been harder for a person of faith than it is today. And the reason we say that stuff is because we look around and our eyes are open and, and we see how rough the world is at times. However you get your news, whether you watch it on TV or get it through an app or however you get your news, I guarantee you if you're to pull up your, your news app right now, um, you're going to read stories about violence and bombings and robbery, murder, war, accidents, manipulation, corruption, cover-ups, COVID, hunger, genocide, violent weather, culture clashes, cheating, bullying. I mean, you're going to read it all right now if you'd open up that news app. On top of that, as Christians, we tend to look at things a little differently, don't we? And so we look at the news reports about how our world today seems to, has, seems to have completely lost its conscience about the unborn. And we hear about these laws that get passed and discussions up on Capitol Hill, just absolutely godless legislation they wanna push through. And, and we hear about the persecution of Christians all around the world. But I tell you that the fiasco of, of what's going on in Afghanistan, I hope you're praying for the church there. Hope you're praying for the Christians in Afghanistan. Life just got a whole lot harder for them. We, we read that and we go, it's the worst it's ever been. Well, as bad as things may seem today in our world, it was worse in Genesis 6, if you can imagine. 
You know, sometimes we talk about the flood in very simplistic ways. Yeah, the earth had gone evil and God destroyed it, which, which is true. But, but there's a whole lot more specifics about why God destroyed the earth and what we have in the past tend to look at. In fact, God himself was a whole lot more specific in why he decided to destroy the earth. In fact, right here at the beginning of Genesis 6, God highlights two specific examples of just how corrupt the world had become. And these two specific examples form the foundation of God's punishment. Now, I want to go back and look at these first eight verses again. You still got it open in front of you? I want to look at verse 1 and 2. And God gets very specific as to why he destroyed the earth. It says, when human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them that they chose. Now let me acknowledge something here. These first couple verses of Genesis 6 are among the most talked about verses in the whole book. Okay? Did anybody read that going, sons of God, daughters of humans, marrying what in the world is going on here? You can admit it. You can admit it if you thought that. Who are the sons of God? And why do they want to marry the daughters of humans? Let me just tell you, there have been some really wild interpretations of these few verses right here. Um, Some have suggested that the sons of God were angels who married the daughters of humans. How many of you ever heard of that theory before? All right, a lot of hands have gone up. Some have even floated around the idea that the sons of God could have been aliens that have come down and married with humans. And uh, we're not even gonna talk about that because that's ridiculous. Okay, turn to your neighbor and say, that's ridiculous. Go ahead, I'm gonna give you that. That's, that's ridiculous. Okay. But I can also say, from where I'm at in my study of the Bible, um, they're not angels either. Okay, they're sons of gods, they're not angels. And I say that primarily because um, even Jesus alluded to the fact in Matthew twenty two thirty that angels don't marry, Okay. So they're not, they're not angels. Um, and, and on top of that, the, the idea that an angel marrying a human, it just doesn't make any sense. Doesn't it seem a little strange and out of context right here in Genesis chapter 6 that, that an angel sinned, married a human, and then the people of earth were destroyed because of the sins of angels? That, that doesn't make any sense to me. It's outside the context of Scripture. And not only that, but, but God makes it specifically clear that uh, the world was destroyed because of the sins of man, not the sins of any angels. Now, I will say this because there is a reason why people draw that conclusion, and it's not illogical by any means uh, from the point of view that, that sometimes sons of God in the Bible is a reference to angels. We read that in the book of Job. But it wasn't a reference to fallen angels or anything like that. But the phrase sons of God is also applied elsewhere in Scripture to be a reference to God's people. Sons of God is a reference to God's people. And from where I'm at in my study right now, that's that's how it's being used here in Genesis chapter 6. It's a reference to God's people. And it actually makes a lot of sense inside of that context. So I'm going to have the genealogy come back up here again on the screen. And I want to show you that the sons of God is probably a reference to the descendants of Seth. Okay? That's probably what is being talked about here. The sons of God is a, is the, is a reference to the descendants of Seth. The daughters of humans is probably a reference to the line of Cain, okay? That's probably what that's being talked about. And something here, something happened between this line 
and that line of descendants that caused God to be deeply remorseful and regretful that he ever created any of them. So let's go back and look at it again. Look at Genesis chapter six, verse one. When human beings, most likely descendants of Cain, began to increase in number on the earth uh, and the and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, most likely the descendants of Seth, saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. So God tells us, here's what's, what's happening. The, the children of these descendants started to intermarry with one another. They, they began to marry each other and this right here grieved God terribly. You see, the covenant of marriage was designed by God. It's the oldest covenant in all the world and, and God's design for marriage and what God intended for his, for his people to, to do, it began to, to break down. Do you remember what God said in the very beginning in the garden? He said, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. God established that when it was just Adam and Eve. In the garden, oldest covenant in all the world. And it would be within this covenant right here between one man and one woman that mankind would be fruitful and that mankind would increase in number. And it, what it appears is that at some point when the earth was getting really populated, that marriage structure that God created began to break down. The descendants of Seth, excuse me, the descendants of Seth who were supposed to be godly, began to indiscriminately marry the descendants of Cain who were completely ungodly. And why is that a big deal? It's a big deal for all the same reasons why it's a big deal today. The descendants of Cain did not share the spiritual values or convictions of the descendants of Seth. And the text says that they married anybody that they chose to. So that probably means that they married polygamously. Um, and quite honestly, when you start to break down God's design for marriage, it just opens the door to so many other things that are improper, and that probably happened here as well. So, when God decided to destroy the earth with the flood, the breakdown of the family, the laxness regarding marriage, was a huge contributing factor. And this is just the first example that God gives us as to, of just how corrupt everything had become. But that's not all. Let's look at verse four. What, what's it say here? The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of hu the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Who in the world were the Nephilim? And what did they have to do with anything? Honestly, several conclusions could be drawn here. Uh, not everybody lands on the same spot on this one. I'm happy to tell you where I land, but you don't have to agree with me or disagree. And if you agree with me, great. If you disagree with me, that's okay too. We can still be friends when this is all over, okay? I'll tell you where I land. In the context, what seems to make the most sense to me anyway, is that the Nephilim seem to be the offspring of, the, of what these families created. Okay, when these families started to intermarry, 
Seems like the Nephilim, that was, those were those offspring. The, the name Nephilim means the fallen ones or the, those who fall upon. And it's, draw, it's caused many people to draw this conclusion. They're probably a bunch of thugs and bandits, probably. I mean, this is where a lot of the violence came from. It's, it's these guys. They were the bullies who fell upon others to force them and to force their will upon them and the world would turn very violent. And that's my interpretation and, and you don't have to agree with that. But at the end of the day, God saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and how great was that wickedness? Every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart were evil all the time. Now just think about that. Let's say there are 750 to a million to a billion people and every last one of them, every last thought they had, every inclination of the heart was evil all the time. Friends, it was worse then than it is today. Every single person. Jump down a few verses, look at verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, full of violence, God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. See, the, the degradation of the human race broke God's heart. Don't miss that here in Genesis 6. So bad that mankind seemed incapable of even thinking a decent thought. And, and, and this is not God's vision. None of this was God's vision when he created mankind in his own image. So he decided to destroy the whole things. And these two reasons that seem to be his reasons in the text is the laxness regarding marriage and the violence associated with the Nephilim. It causes me to ask this question. If those are the two reasons that form the foundation of why God destroyed the earth, laxness in, regarding marriage and the violence that had corrupted the world, then my goodness, how much longer is God gonna put up with us? Do you wonder about that? How much longer till God decides enough is enough? Now, here's what we know from the New Testament. God's already communicated that there will be a day when enough is enough. We already know that. It's not a matter of if, but when. And if the laxness regarding marriage and the violence that filled the earth were the catalyst for the degradation of the human race, then why couldn't that be the catalyst again for when God would say enough is enough? Because it's our generation right now that seems to be the most confused generation when it comes to God's plan for marriage. It's our generation. It's, it's our generation, our, our, our time frame here we're living in, this is the generation that's completely tried to redefine what marriage is. And we do that to suit our own desires. It's, it's our generation that seems to be the most offended by God's design for sexuality. It's our generation that seems to be the most disgusted by the genetic makeup of the family that God created. It's our generation that seems to be the most confused about the roles in marriage, that, you know, more confused today than perhaps at least any time that I can think of in my life that it's ever been, maybe even since the days of Noah. Let, let, let's be honest. It's so confused and it's so messed up right now that there are people in our world that hold very important positions 
And those people who are making the most important decisions for, for our world today are the ones that could not know or does not know how to answer a five-year-old's question about which bathroom is mine? It's, it's our generation that have become pros at violence. Now every generation has hurt people. Every generation has killed people, but it's our generation that makes movies and video games out of it. You turn on the TV, open up any news app you have available to you, and that's all you hear about is the violence in our world. It's our generation, according to the World Health Organization, that kills an estimated of 40 to 50 million babies worldwide every year. That's 125,000 abortions per day on this planet. That same organization reports that 22% of all pregnancies in the United States this year will end in an abortion. That is 3,000 babies in America that will die every day for abortion, from abortion. There are many people, many Christians who believe that right before the return of Christ, it will get really bad. Have you heard that? And if by really bad or worse, they mean it reverting back to the days of Noah, then I would say, then we're on a collision course, friends. So in verse six, God is just done. He's done of what's happening in the world. And the Bible says that his heart was deeply troubled. If you read from the New American Standard Version of the Bible, it says he was grieved in his heart. Verse seven says, God said, for I regret that I have made them. Now if you want my opinion, I believe these are all emotions that God still feels today. And why wouldn't he still feel those same emotions? God hasn't changed. Look at the conditions of things today, especially related to our world's view of marriage and violence. Why wouldn't God have some of these similar emotions? I'm, I'm drawn to what commentary writer James Smith writes about these emotions that God is having. He says this, God regretted that he had made man. The word regretted does not signify a change of purpose, but a change of feeling. That makes sense to me as I study scripture. Because God still desires for man to be made in his image. God still desires to do life with mankind. But man, he experienced some significant regret over what they became. His heart was troubled. His heart was grieved. And I, and I hope you see that we have a God who's very personal. These are details about a very personal God. When you're experiencing a troubled spirit within you, God gets it. He gets the conflict. When you grieve over troubled days, God gets that too. He understands. When you experience regret in your own life, God can relate. He's been there. He's experienced the emotion He's not a passionless God. He's not a Santa Claus. And right here in the beginning of the Bible, we see God experiencing emotions that we experience ourselves. 
So out of that, God made three proclamations. This is what I'm gonna do. The first proclamation, he says, is my spirit will not contend with humans forever. So God's just basically, guys, I'm not gonna put up with this forever. It's kind of now kind of that parent role. You know, I'm not putting up with this, young man. I mean, it's a little bit of that. I'm not gonna contend with this. If you ask my opinion, God still feels this way, and I, and I wonder how many times he has said since, my spirit will not contend with humans forever. Now, everything in the New Testament draws me to that conclusion that God won't put up with this forever, um, but, but there's this really important detail in the New Testament, and perhaps you've read it. We learned this incredible thing about God. It's this, God is patient, and that's huge. And do you know why the New Testament gives us that detail about God, why he's patient? Do you remember why it says, explains why he is? It's because God doesn't want anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. God's patience, I believe, is what's saving the bacon of the world today. God's patient. And that speaks to his heart. He doesn't want anybody to perish. He wants everybody to come to repentance. Because you know what? Because his vision hasn't changed. His feelings in Genesis 6, he regretted he made mankind, but he still feels very strong in his purpose. I want to do life with man. Second proclamation is this. He says, his days will be numbered to 120. And I'm just going to tell you, this is another one of those highly debated things. I think you could go either way on it. I'll tell you where I feel. You can, you can interpret how you feel. But some people say, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm, his days will be numbered to 120. Did God mean that um, he's going to get rid of these long lifespans? You know, no, no, no more hundreds of years of living. I'm gonna shorten your days. Is that what he meant by that? We certainly see after the flood, lifespans went down, didn't they? And that's okay. Many people come to that conclusion. Here's where I land. This is what makes the most sense to me, and this seems to make the most, most sense in the context of Genesis. I believe that what God is saying is, I'm giving you, I'm not gonna contend with you forever. I'm giving you 120 more years till you're done. That's where I land. Um, we know it took Noah at least 100 years to build the ark. It fits within the timeline. We're not exactly sure when God made this proclamation, but what seems to make the most, most sense to me is God said his days will be 120 years. 120 years from now, you're done. And that's when the flood comes, and that's when we learn about Noah, and it took him at least 100 years to build it. It fits. No matter how you land on that one, it doesn't change God's third proclamation. He says, I will wipe mankind from the face of the earth. And with them, animals, birds, creatures that move along the ground, God is just done. And, and, and I tell you, it feels like everything we've talked about today is just bad, 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 bad. And it is. But then we come to verse eight. What's it say? But Noah. Okay, but Noah. The one little light shining in the darkness. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Verse nine, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. You know what Noah did? It's very simple. He just stood out from the crowd. That's it. In the midst of all this evil and corruption that we've been talking about, there was one dude God had one man who stood out from the crowd. He lived a righteous life among evil people. And, and we kind of get this impression of every thought, every heart, every person, evil all the time. God had one guy 
that, that he could, could count on. One guy that was separated out of the pack. And friends, God's still looking for the Noahs of this world. And I believe the church today are the Noahs of the world. You know, the Bible talks about Noah stood out. You know, he, he was righteous and blameless. This is the way the New Testament describes the church today as holy, set apart in the world, not of the world. We're different. We're not to be like, so to me, Noah back then would be like the guy today who you work with, but you're never gonna hear a dirty joke come out of his mouth. It's that guy, that's, that's the Noah. He's the guy that um, uh, when everybody's hanging out the water cooler, so to speak, you know, he's not gonna be there gossiping. He's not gonna be there, you know, um, um, speaking of things inappropriately. Noah, Noah isn't the guy that's uh, coming to church on Sunday, but he was drunk on Friday. He's not that guy. He's not the guy that, that spends his off time looking for ways to fulfill his, his urges. He's not that guy. Noah is like the honest businessman who, who's on a business trip and he carefully separates his business expenses from his personal expenses. You're never gonna find a guy like Noah in a place where one might question his, his morals. You're never gonna find him in a, in a dirty hotel somewhere doing things with people he shouldn't be doing. You're never gonna find him fulfilling the lust of his eyes. That's the Noah, the one guy that stood out among all the evil of the world. Noah's like the guy that you can trust. He's not gonna throw you under the bus. He's not gonna try to steal your promotion. That's not the Noah. Noah's the guy that you know that whether the whole world's watching him or nobody's watching him, he's just the same guy. The conditions of the earth were terrible, but Noah stood out. And it's just like that for many of us, all of us. God is still looking for the Noahs of this corrupt and evil generation that we're living in. God's still looking. He hasn't changed. And it just says in Genesis 6, 9, Noah walked with God. So I'll leave you with this. What about you? Could Genesis 6, 9 be said of each one of us, blameless among the people of his time? And if that doesn't describe us, if that doesn't describe the church today, then why not? Why not? Does your faith cause you to stand out from the crowd? Now, I wanna go back to this graphic one last time. I'm gonna be honest with you. I'm always honest with you. I see similarities between the pre-flood world of Genesis 6 and the United States of America today. I see the similarities. And I wonder, maybe I would say I suspect that God has similar feelings now. But I, I'm not God. But I, I just, in comparison, I, I look at the pre-flood world I look at today and think of what led God to do what he did and what, I, I think he's feeling similar emotions. That's just my opinion. But I'll tell you this, there, there's a huge significant difference between the pre-flood world of Noah's day and our day. And the big difference is Jesus. That's the difference. The difference is Jesus Christ and his bride, the church, his bride is walking the earth today. And that's the difference. And that's significantly different from a pre-flood world. God is patient, thank goodness. And we're not all corrupt. And we're not all evil all the time. You know why? Because the church Christians are standing in the gap. Christians are here fulfilling the greatest purpose 
on earth to go and make disciples, to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, to teach them to obey everything that Jesus taught. And knowing as we do that, that the Lord is with us surely to the very end of the age when God says enough, enough, and I'm coming. Our job is to rescue people out of this darkness and bring them into the light. We are ambassadors for Christ, helping people be reconciled to God. We have the ministry of reconciliation, bring people from, to, to relationship with God. That's our purpose. That's the difference between the pre-flood world of Noah and today. It's the church. And Jesus is the one who made all the difference. Aren't you thankful that you found Christ? Aren't you thankful that we're spared from sin's worst consequence, which would be an eternity, death and eternity without the Lord? I'm thankful. Let's live like people who are thankful. Let's live like the Noahs in this generation. Let me pray for you. Lord, we give you thanks for this day. And we thank you, Lord, for what you teach us from the book of Genesis, Lord. I pray that it doesn't just blow right past us and we don't think about it anymore. But Lord, I just pray we take him to heart. And that, Lord, we're grateful that you are patient But Lord, we also know that there is an end time. And Lord, we know from your word, you will not put up with man forever. There comes a day when all this will come again and we will see you return and we will be with you forever. And Lord, we we, we pray and speed that day coming. But Lord, until that day comes, help us to be like the Noah's righteous in an evil generation. Stand out in the crowd. Be the ambassador you've called us to be on the ministry of reconciliation, baptizing and teaching people. Rescue them from the darkness so they have new life in you. Lord, help us to be that while we wait for your return. In Jesus' name, amen.